Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Wait, so, uh, go ahead a uh, few more questions um yeah so uh and you prefer this uh, video i suppose or how do you want to do that yeah so what we generally do um i like video because i like to put up on put them up on youtube but if you don't want your video up i just put up the rec- the audio on youtube it's not sure. a problem at all so either way whatever you're comfortable with um got it i think i should be fine with uh video i suppose yeah no problem um in terms of the the content, I did want to say the stuff that I'm not. Yeah, I guess I'm not sure I'm able to talk too much in detail about my employer. So that's like one thing. Yeah, sure, we'll keep it. Um, yeah, that's one one thing I don't necessarily uh, am able to talk to. Definitely cool. Yeah, and if anything's like you're like, man, you think about it, you know, later you're like, yeah, I, I you know, I don't want that out there. Just let me know, and we'll sure rid of it. Cool. cool. Awesome. Well, Ave, how are you doing today? Doing well, um, sneaked out of work uh, a little bit early today to do this podcast and uh, yeah, excited to be on the show. That's awesome. Do you mind giving just kind of a, a brief bio and, and some of the big ideas you're interested in? A little bit about myself is I work at this company called Enduro Industries, uh, which is uh, builds software and hardware products for use in defense. Uh, been working here for two years and eight months. Uh, currently work on the platform infrastructure team, uh, working on a variety of different things, uh, mostly on, on our platform, which is, we call it the Lattice AI platform. That is this platform for defense. And before that, I was uh, on our autonomy program. I built uh, one of our early autonomy systems. Uh, and uh, before that, I was on the perception side, working directly under the CEO um, as an early employee, and uh, before that, I was in college, I studied AI research, uh, and yeah, that's been like a little bit of my of my current most recent background. And uh, I was also the president of our AI club in the university nice. that we built from scratch. So that was fun. Super cool, super cool. And you know, why spend your time on defense? You know, what about it is is appealing to you in particular? So. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I just, I'm not sure how, how much I'm able to talk about this, this topic. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a little bit related to my employer, but um, the way I ended up at my current job was mostly around, I was looking for a fast growing company and yeah. uh, I thought Andy Road is one of the most, uh, is going to be like a fast growing company given their background. It had, gotcha. uh, you know, uh, director of engineering from Palantir, which is Brian. Uh, founders right. partner Trey and uh, co-founder CEO of Oculus Palmer, who had already sold uh, two billion dollar company to Facebook, and just having that all-star lineup, and as well as Matt and um, uh, Joe, who are the other founders, who were also successful from Oculus and Palantir in the past. So just like an all-star 
founding team like that is it's hard to was kind of a stars aligning moment that I, it was hard for me to not see how this would succeed. So that was the reason I ended up joining. Nice. So it's something like, you know, this is a rocket ship. I see I've got an opportunity here. This is this is worth pursuing. Not like, okay, this, you know, defense, defense is a big problem. Like I want to apply my talents to, if that makes sense. Kind of came after the fact. Sure. Yeah. Uh, maybe more, a little bit more, more along those lines. Cool. Cool. That, that's, that's super cool. Um, I want to talk about robotics a little bit. You know, we had this like promise. If you look at uh, science fiction in the 40s and 50s, and uh, you think about the you know the Jetsons, and you think about right. you know you know robot assistants around everywhere, and and that really has not panned out, right? I mean, I've got a Roomba right. sitting beside me, but that's about the extent of of how far we've gotten. Um, are there there hard technical challenges around perception that just make you know you know what is the big stumbling block from where we are now to getting to the point where we've got like you know really robust and and I may not be defining this well, but um, you know people that can help us like, you know, fold laundry or like robots that can help us fold laundry or just like household chores, you know, industrial capability, you know, where do you see the big, um, big places that, that need innovation to get there? Definitely. Um, as a kid as well, I grew up watching these shows. I would watch Jetsons and that's probably the first way you get introduced to robotics is a humanoid robot who's like friendly and right. helps out and so forth. Um, and then as I studied computer science and studied artificial intelligence, uh, this almost was, you know, the opposite of the reality where these kinds of technologies are in fact a lot harder uh, than building, let's say some sort of a pure virtual assistant uh, that right. uh, like Siri is a lot easier than building uh, someone who will clean your room. Right. And it's not apparent uh, at first, like, why would that be the case? Like Siri can answer any questions about the world because it access to yeah. search engines. Why is that necessarily easier than being able to clean my room or something or make me food? Not obvious, but what we have realized is that um, we have really good systems for information processing, uh, collecting the world data, organizing it and so forth, but we don't have very good systems for perception, collecting real world data, uh, understanding the real world. And um, what I've realized over time is that the systems necessary to build these kinds of uh, algorithms in the real world, the infrastructure is not really there. There is, um, we're really far away from being able to build general purpose robotics that actually operate in the real world. The closest we have gotten to general purpose robotics uh, is, more, is recently is again in the domain of picking, where you will pick like objects in a gotcha. line and it will be general purpose in the sense that you can pick different kinds of objects, but, but that's gotcha. the extent to which general purpose robotics has gotten. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, I, I would diagnose as a systems problem at the end of the day, but obviously people will probably differ on that. Interesting. And, and, and when you think about it as a systems problem, is that just like connecting all these disparate technologies you need? Like, so I can think of, you know, let's say you want to pick a strawberry where well, you've got to identify what a strawberry is, Yeah. you know, and then you can't, you know, you've got a, have some way of determining how hard you're going to press on it when you pull it off because if you press too hard it's going to explode you know there's there's many challenges here you know how do you mm -hmm. navigate in space uh yeah so i guess what do you mean by by a systems like system problem there is it just connecting right. everything up in a robust way so, so certainly that is one aspect is wiring things together and getting all those things going 
But the other aspect of this is I like, uh, so I think there's this quote from uh, Isaac Newton where he says that if I've seen farther, it is by standing on the shoulder of giants. And uh, that's like, he was speaking from a scientific perspective when he's looking to invent new things in, well, discover new things in the scientific domain. Uh, and technological domain is a similar uh, kind of idea where uh, every sort of great leap in technological progress is uh, made possible by infrastructure or systems. Gotcha. And let me give you an example for that. When we think about Google, right, it's how was Google even possible? It was possible because you had this thing called the internet, which is this ubiquitous technology that we don't even think about. Uh, Alan Kay has a line on this, which is, when was the last time you saw a technology that this technology doesn't even feel like a technology, almost feels like a natural resource. It feels like the ocean that you can ship bite onto and it will just work. So these kinds of, when we think about, okay, what enables these really powerful applications, it's those like hidden layers of systems that are built up. And when you transpose this to robotics, it's similar. Like, do we have the hardware? Do we have the sensing systems? Do you have the perception systems? Do we have the, some sort of like, I don't know, like uh, development tools? you know, the robotics development ecosystem is far worse than the cloud software development ecosystem. So when you, when you add up all those things, it, it manifests in a difference that is not just like a 10x difference, but it's like a thousand or multiple hours of magnitudes difference in, you know, quality output, I guess. Um, so that's one way to formulate that. Not sure how much that makes sense. But... No, yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. It, it also seems like it, it's probably like a, part of it seems to be kind of a capital problem it's just so much more expensive to do things like in in the real world like you know yeah. when you're dealing with robots it's much easier than like you know zero marginal cost software right like right. i don't know uh do, do you see things changing now that you know capital is so easily available do, do you think it, it, it's possible to that we'll see more innovation in this in the robotic space just because <laughs> i don't know like I go, I go back and forth on that ideally so the way the whole, you know, the way the idea around quantitative easing is that when you increase the amount of credit in the economy, it leads to either one of two things. It, one, it leads to productivity increases or it leads to inflation. That's to right. get the productivity increase, you need spare capacity in the ecosystem, which basically means that something along the lines of engineers ready to build stuff and they're not building stuff because they don't have money. And if that is true, then you will, it will lead it, to it'll start working. Yeah. because you have spare capacity. But if that's not true, you see like weird phenomena. Right. And uh, what what seems to be happening to me is you don't you're not actually seeing people going out and building stuff. It actually weird phenomena. <laughs> you you're seeing weird phenomena on the internet where you're seeing like uh, you know I don't know like NFTs or something and crazy stuff right. like that. Like the meme economy is getting created instead. Yeah. So what we wanted was you know people building robots and buildings and monuments and so forth. Yeah. What we got was the meme economy and uh, everything is more fake than ever. So right. uh, I, that's, that's what I see is happening. The question maybe is better framed as we don't need more credit. What we need is spare capacity. And then, yeah, how do you sort of uh, arrange things in a way that has spare capacity to build stuff in the real world or something? Right, right. Yeah, it's a it's a real problem. It, it, and 
you make a great point. It does seem like things are just getting even more virtual. You know, there's this whole right. discourse around like whatever the hell Web three is. I'm not sure, but um, you know, it's something, right? Everyone's like uh, just leaning in there to. This is very interesting. Uh, you know, how do you? Uh, this is a tough problem, and um, I don't expect you to have a an answer to it. But you know, you know, how do you encourage people to actually? work on real problems in the real world. You know, we, yesterday we talked to uh, Carlos from Quays, who's doing mm -hmm. uh, millimeter wave drilling for uh, geothermal energy, which is mm -hmm. really, you know, really like cool technology. Um, it's very difficult, but you know, if he pulls it off, it's like, this is a very important thing to be doing. Uh, Absolutely. Is it just like, you know, you started an AI club. Is it uh, just talking to young people, telling that that it is possible to solve some of these problems that we have in the world? Um, what do you think about that? Like, like, what should we try and do as individuals to help? It's a good question. And it's a weird one because, um, it's funny because when you, you look at the decisions people have, you know, where will they spend their time on? It's like, you can make $10 million in three months working on crypto. Or you can spend 10 years on improving other people's lives. I mean, I'm not, right. I, I, that's like, yeah, I'm not saying that crypto is bad in every sense, but I'm saying that uh, the way things are set up right now is that the incentives are to work on the virtual thing, which is the, it, to be fair, it's like not been the case necessarily just for crypto. It's been the case for software more generally, more generally. for like uh, the last 20, 30 years. So it's just been way easier to build stuff in the software. So uh, I think there was a point someone brought up on this was, I think it was a Sam Altman actually, where it's like, okay, if it's not that we should ban crypto, what we should do instead is make the real world stuff easier. And then that's like, uh, it's a definitely a long debate. And I think there's many ways to do it. Um, and you know, one of the ways is just making that cool again. And I think people right. have been working on this. Um, and it is pretty cool, actually. Like when you tell people about your crazy uh, geothermal mining project, right, exactly. that's cool, right? I mean, yeah, it's awesome. Sounds cool. It, I think it is in. And then what we need to see is uh, a series of successes that make this likely thing to be doing, and uh, that can maybe, yeah, yeah, rearrange. Yeah. Yeah, and it does seem like the success aspect is really important, right? Like people need to have something they can kind of yeah. like look up to or like desire, and that's uh, if they don't really have that kind of model, they're in it's in trouble. It's like how do you get there? Really Absolutely, kind of success but get success. That's super interesting. Glenn, do you have a question? Yeah. So, as an AI guy, um, I've I've had this i I've I've come across this idea that for things like vision systems and general purpose AIs, uh, what you might need is, uh, in a sense, a body or a way for the AI to navigate the world. Mm -hmm. And this is from the idea that as animals, and specifically as people with really advanced consciousnesses, we think of things in terms of what we can do with them. So we think of pens as things we can pick up, and then right. things on the size of way too big to pick up we think how we can get around them. Like we look yes. at a mountain and we think I can walk up that. Yes. What's your opinion on that? I think I've read an argument from this. I can't remember, but this is something around the lines of, I think someone basically used something like this argument where since the AI is not in the world and then it's not, uh, since the AI is not part of the world, this is like a philosophical argument it's called being in the world. 
It's not in the world in the sense of that you just described where you cannot interact with the world. It cannot actually attain intelligence the same way humans do. Therefore, it proves that um, artificial general intelligence is not possible. So uh, something along those lines. Uh, it's a pretty interesting top uh, paper. I can't remember who wrote that. It's a pretty famous one as well. Uh, thing is, is it Herbert Dreyfus? I think, I think it might be, yeah, Herbert Dreyfus, if I'm getting that right, um, or some, someone related to that person. But um, it's an interesting idea. And it's always an open question of, can you actually get intelligence? This, like, there's intelligence as being substitutive of humans. And then there is intelligence that is of a different kind, almost like, uh, of a supernatural, maybe not supernatural nature or something. And uh, I'm always, I don't know how you get uh, intelligence that is substitutive of humans in the sense that you describe, like, how do we get an AI to move around the world? Even if you get the perception systems sophisticated enough, you know, even then it's like unclear, maybe, maybe not, maybe I'm wrong where maybe there's like a, a limit you hit where the perception systems get so good uh, that meets the resolution of the eye and uh, nose and so forth. And then you put all of those together in a mechanical body and then it's an agent. So it's able to learn you know, by moving around the world. Maybe that's possible. I, I don't know. Uh, that's one kind of intelligence. And then there's the other kind of intelligence that's not in the world, in the, in the formal sense where it's in this virtual world, it's in the internet or something. And then it operates purely on language. This is more closer to the, the current foundation models we're looking at, like GPT-3 and, and BERT and so forth, uh, that are imitating intelligence purely by operating on language. And that is a different kind of intelligence than the intelligence that is in the world, that is interacting with the world, and the physical world at least. And uh, those can be separate intelligences with different kinds of powers. And um, maybe we'll have, yeah, uh, this is, I'm getting speculative here a little bit maybe those two kinds of intelligences have different uh, growth trajectories where the the GPT-20 or something is very good at uh, knowledge work and so forth, whereas the the Jetson bot that is in the world is able to, yeah, maybe maybe interact with the as an agent with the physical world and learn interesting things there. Um, but there's like pretty pretty hard challenges on the real world side because the way we have done uh, agent learning is using a large set of episodes uh, in terms of like you should, when you're training a game or agents in a game to play the game, you have to like run billions of simulations. So you can't do that with the real world robot. So that's one challenge, but otherwise, yeah, maybe they will trend to different kinds of intelligences and there's not necessarily like one super powerful intelligence, uh, if that makes sense. Right. Have you heard of... Um... Psych, it's a company who's trying to like hard code almost heuristics in language. Um, and it's really interesting because they're trying to get a jumping off point for general intelligences to understand things like, you know, um, oh, it's really hard to explain. But like if you say uh, Glenn died and then in the next sentence you say Glenn was walking around the mall. You can you you assume that like they're talking about different times because of your general heuristic of you know dead people don't walk around malls or something like that or dead people can't walk. Um, right, so I, the, I, is the idea that you're going to build a heuristic database of some kind and uh, prime 
the general learner from that? Yes. And they had written this like, or they had come up with this like type of coding language where mm -hmm. you could like, you know, explicitly state these heuristics. Sure. And I listened to a podcast about it. It was from uh, Lex Friedman, but I forget the guy's name and I don't even know how to spell psych. So yeah. I don't know if this helps a lot. Uh oh, is this, is this recent? Well, I guess it's Lex Friedman. So I'm sure it's like fairly recent. Um, um, well, the guy's been doing this for something like 30 years, I think he oh, said. Okay. That makes so, sense. and the, the way he started it was he was asking his friends or colleagues or whatever, um, you know, if you could distill all of the common sense into a number of ideas that people have learned, mm -hmm. like how many could there be, you know, and mm -hmm. everybody kind of came up with like probably around a hundred million maybe. And so how long would it take for a number of coders to using a language, right. explicitly write them down in a, in a database? Hey, that's a, that's an interesting, interesting point. Uh, well, what number has he gotten into? Do you happen to know? Or... <laughs> they said it in the podcast. I don't know. I go through okay. Lex Friedman stuff. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think it was younger. I think his name was younger, something younger. And his company oh. was Psych. Right. Well, I guess how many, like, so you said it, it, there's only 100 million core ideas or something. And how many ideas does he have so far? I think he had gotten to something like 70,000 or maybe 700,000. Okay, like that's quite a way off. Very quite, far. quite a way off. Yeah, not super far, and he's been going for thirty years. But um, he's, wow, that's right. That's a, it, a high motivation person, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, I th this reminds me of hey, you know, how concerned are you about like AI safety? We've talked to uh, quite a few people that that work on the field in the pod uh, on the podcast. Um, I, I'm almost more worried that we we never get to general AGI, you know, AGI. Um, but yeah, how concerned are you, and, and and what what do you think should be done about it? So I'm concerned about. So the AGI question is always a question mark, and there are people who have been you know raising their arms about it. Uh, you know, like this famous figures about that. The shorter term concern is actually more around what I would say data privacy and data regulation, which is who controls like the data sets. That's one, one setup. And then the other one is more on like compute governance, who controls the compute. Because uh, what we are seeing right now is that uh, the powerful intelligences that are getting built uh, require heavy compute. It's, it's a compute intensive. Yeah. I don't, I don't even know if it's like data intensive anymore. It's almost like a compute intensive. So whoever has is the big clusters are going to yield uh, outsized returns or and so forth. So that is a weird setup, I think, mostly because uh, when I think about AI, it's kind of a public good invention in the sense that this is a, it's like a scientific discovery. If you discover yeah. intelligence, the public good discovery, it's, it's like uh, patenting uh, equals MC square or some fundamental law of the universe. Like that, those are the kinds of, things you're discovering. But what we're seeing in practice is that uh, it's the big, big tech companies that have the capital and resources to build these things. So that is the, that is how I would frame that whole debate, at least in my head. I mean, I'm sure other people have other opinions, but that's, that's my main, main thought there is uh, who, who controls the, the, the compute. 
gotcha. Uh, it's just, yeah. a, just a resourcing problem. And the, there's only a few people that really have the capability to make that happen. Yes. And then they will make it happen for their own benefit, I suppose, <laughs> and not for the benefit of uh, some, some greater, greater good. So that is, that is the situation right now we're in. I think it's a, a good way to think about it. And one should perhaps yeah. go buy some Fang stock. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh, people have been doing well on that, and um, it's going to be interesting how that develops. Yeah. Do you, th- do you is it your feeling that the? Uh, it, well, I have the I have the feeling that the big tech companies have gotten fairly sclerotic. Yeah. What's your feeling on that? I we've talked to someone from uh, Facebook's AI research lab, and it, it, and he works on robotics um, as well, actually, doing some pretty interesting things, but. Outside of like some few small pockets, it seems to be just like sit on the giant, you know, money printing press of ad revenue and mm-hmm. ride that out until, you know, despite internal political battles until it, it explodes or something. I don't know. What, what's your feeling on that? Not sure it's uniform at these companies. There are certainly places, there are certainly ways to retire early by working on these companies. Right. Like when you, I'm sure there's like many, many positions you can join right out of a, as a college graduate at a big tech company where you, yeah, it's like an early retirement package where you, you graduate and now you're done or something. Yeah. I'm sure that's possible, but at the same time, it's also the case that all the top AI researchers are in some sense, uh, working with these companies, yeah. so either Facebook or Google or OpenAI, which is now kind of like, yeah, uh, funded by Microsoft. And, um, so yeah, it's, it seems to be the case that, uh, they both have, they, they do have the, the best AI talent. Um, so this is being from out, outside perspective. Uh, I did intern Facebook, but that's been a while. And, um, yeah, that's, um, that, that's my view at least. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, I want to shift a little bit and, mm-hmm. uh, we can definitely cut this part, but Gerard, you know, how did you first get introduced to Gerard and, and to you, what makes Gerard really interesting? Like, like what fastback, is it like understanding desire? Is it the kind of understanding of myth and violence? Like, like what is really interesting to you? The way I got introduced to it was I was really interested in understanding anthropology or, you know, studying you know, human nature and what that means. And, um, came across, yeah, I think Gerard styles himself as a cultural anthropologist. And uh, he has this theory of human nature, um, at least that is sort of revealed uh, through these certain texts. And um, I guess that is the aspect that is interesting to me, which is, um, yeah, he has this theory of human nature and um, it has, and it's, it's, it's like a, it's one model of viewing people as a, kind of like mimetic objects and uh yeah and it's it's i guess from an ai perspective not that crazy because you're sort of like imitative uh, learning so forth right um and that it's an interesting model and an interesting way of analyzing um yeah human behavior and that is sort of uh, my my exposure there at least definitely definitely uh i don't know about you but did you have a moment you know after you've started reading Gerard where you like, you look at your own desires and you're like, wow, like, man, like I, I need to really sit down and think about this more. Absolutely. So there's probably <laughs> been at least the whole, so there's this, he has this one, one aspect of his theories, like the triangular structure yeah. of desire. And that one really hit me hard. At least when I was analyzing my own sort of 
uh, relationships and so forth. It's like, it's too, it's too real. And it's like, wow, this is, this is way too real. And uh, that has been pretty powerful at least. Uh, and I'm surprised people haven't discovered this already. It's kind of embedded in literature. It's embedded in Shakespeare and so forth. Um, but I'm surprised nobody just said this theory, you know, um, I think someone, I'm sure some people have, but, um, yeah, I, it's a, it's a really powerful model that, um, it, it it sounds almost too stupid to be true, you know. Right, it, it does. It's all it's all of us seems simplistic until you you start thinking about it. you're like, oh man, like it drives quite a lot. I, I'm in the middle of reading uh, notes from the underground by Dostoevsky. Excuse my pronunciation there, uh, and it's incredible how ingrained all these ideas are around. You know, mm -hmm. like you know, he's talking about how we used to scapegoat people, and now like we can't like when we do that, we know it's wrong. And isn't it worse to do it if you know it's wrong? And, you know, like the main character, it's, it's, it's quite, quite impressive. And, and I can see how Gerard pulled a lot of his ideas out of that. Um, have you gathered, uh, you know, how, how much do you buy about the specialness of, of Christianity um, and how Gerard paints it as being like, you know, the first, like the Christian myth the story of jesus being innocent being the first kind of um scapegoat that's kind of proclaimed to be innocent in in myth i so um i don't know if I, i'm saying this very well but yeah do you yes. think this do, do you buy that do you think this is a this is a true true statement yeah that's an interesting question um let me think um and take so the time. one thing i would say here is that i think gerard i'm not sure gerard I don't know where he comes off on this. So in his own text, he has mentioned that it's not, while this is, the, while he definitely maintains that this is, uh, this uh, the way he describes it is like, this is revelatory mechanism in Christianity. I'm not sure he thinks it's unique. Uh, and he has pointed to other counterexamples, like for example, there's a Hindu tradition, uh, which, and he's not an expert in Sanskrit, but he yeah. believes he, he has talked to Sanskrit authors and he believes a similar mechanism is present in other religions so i don't even know where he comes off on that uh his own background is christianity so it's understandable why he has focused on that um so it is entirely possible this is this is it seems like an underrated phase of research right now at least in uh, uh the way gerard describes this was uh or i don't know if it's just gerard but the line of her on this is like religion is bad cosmology, good on anthropology, meaning that uh, these texts have um, anthropology em embedded in them and they're all worth understanding and studying for that reason. And, um, uh, and there's, there's this whole notion of, I don't know if you've heard this, there's like the axial age and there's all these like ages in, in time or knowledge where uh, it's almost like human history is evolving through language or our understanding of consciousness evolving. And during the axial age, all these, there was like one period of time in human history where all of these religions were born. It's, it's kind of like a Cambrian explosion, but in religion. Yeah. And after that, you don't see any more religions being born. So it's kind of like this evolving consciousness or of our language. And uh, that way you can see, you know, I think in the same period of time there's Christianity, Buddhism, uh, Zoroastrianism, and a few other religions being formed. So it's like very much like this, um, this evolution in consciousness. 
which is an interesting way to think about it. Oh, that's super interesting. Maybe it's just like all these things came together. It was just the right time for, you know, this kind of like thing for us to discover. And then kind of like the Julian Jaynes, like origin of consciousness thing. Um, right. That's very interesting. It's very interesting. Uh, which one of Gerard's works impressed you the most? So that's a tough one. I think I, I really like this one called When These Things Begin. And the reason I like that one is the, the setup is basically like the author attacking him with questions like, but why not this? But why not this? And so forth. And he just like destroys him on each line. <laughs> Yeah, which which I really love. Uh, so it's a pretty interesting setup, and um, he the uh, at least the to the in the defense of the the uh, questioner, the questioner does ask like main the main objections people usually have to yeah. Gerard theory, and uh, he answers them depending on your interpretation. I thought it was fairly you know in a fairly uh, agreeable manner, um, and there were some there were some very wild wild thoughts he had. Uh, that that text not only goes over like the usual like uh, anthropology philosophy religion questions but it also goes over like science questions so like gerard has theories on like why you know we have had this this we have had this whole uh, exploration in um almost like there's this whole uh, this is pattern in like uh, physics where people are like okay we're gonna open up Parts like we're gonna okay, we discard the atom and then we have subatomic particles and then we have strings and then just keep trying to go down. And then somehow Gerard believes that this is almost like a dead end in a way, or we're looking, we're just gonna keep on finding another layer. And oh, it's how he has uh, views on all on these things, which is not necessarily directly attached to his um, main 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 theory. So yeah, uh, that's one of the interesting tidbits. Oh, that's super interesting. What was that uh, text again? Was it When It Begins? When These Things Begin. When These Things Begin. That's super interesting. I'm going to put that guy. Name as well. Yep. Super interesting. You know, what has it been like? Um, I'm assuming you've got, you know, you're, you're a great engineer, got a hard engineering background. How is it like coming to like look at human nature, cultural anthropology through that lens? Mm-hmm. And has that informed anything? And perhaps, you know, do you think that made Gerard a bit appealing in that it, it, it's systematizing in some sense um, of human nature? Yes, that is definitely one aspect that I, so this is one of the critiques of Gerard. Like Gerard believes that there's an aversion in the humanities or social sciences to systematizing. Right. And uh, there they they were these structuralists um, like Claude Lévi-Strauss and so forth, who did have some systematization, uh, but more more of the modern turn has been against systematization and more around, yeah, like avoiding that. And there's, I think, a long intellectual history reason for why that is. But uh, that is definitely true in the humanities and social sciences. There's an aversion to systematization, and as a computer scientist, that is something that I'm naturally inclined towards is understanding you know, patterns, all kinds of patterns. And um, you see similar patterns uh, in, in like software engineering, we're thinking about how to structure an organization and the code you develop is a function of that organization. So uh, thinking of all of these in a systems perspective is w one thing that really interests me in, um, 
not a Girard, but there's like other other you know thinkers who have this approach, a systematic approach, uh, to thinking about um, yeah human nature. Yeah, so that's definitely one uh, resonance with me. Definitely. And who are some of those thinkers? You know, like what would you recommend? Well, the classical thinkers like Aristotle and so forth. Uh, these people had a similar approach to understanding things. Um, they brought down, like they brought down nature from the heavens. So for the first time, they were thinking about human nature not as something that is like almost like a celestial object, and more as a thing you can observe and understand, and build a theory from that. So the whole like scientific tradition is in a way born out of that. So. Uh, there's a lot there actually if you just read the classical text of Aristotle like he's he's systematizing and he's I mean I think it was his idea really which is like man is or humans are the most imitative of all creatures that was not Gerard's idea that was Aristotle's idea so or he came up with it before Gerard maybe he saw it from someone else I don't know so the classical thinkers are a really good source in that sense and um, if yeah, for some reason, people don't go to the direct sources, but there's actually a lot there. And uh, in a weird way, we haven't necessarily moved too much far from that, right. uh, which, is, which is really bizarre, I think. Um, definitely, definitely. It, it, it's quite it's quite bizarre. Uh, I'm curious, are you down for a quick round of overrated or underrated? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Turn around? Okay. Uh, okay. So the first one, Boston Dynamics, overrated or underrated or correctly rated? I don't know. Underrated as a marketing firm, overrated as a engineering company. Oh, really? Well, it is. It's literally a marketing company at the moment. It's, it's like, primarily right, right. It, yeah, people that, see the the wild videos and YouTube where the brains explode, and they've been around <laughs> for like what two decades, and yeah. they've been like shuffled, like just like they get acquired from one company and the other, and gotcha. Uh, they're really good marketing. I mean, I, I love them. <laughs> I don't know if how. What can you do with them? Like, can you actually use them? I don't know. Right. So, 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 <laughs> it's it's uh, kind of searching for an application, but it hasn't quite for, for 20 years. I mean, that's yeah, for 20 years. At, at some point you're, yeah. So it's, you stop being uh, like a consumer or product market fit oriented company and something else, I guess. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, negative interest rates, overrated or underrated? So on the one hand, everybody is like always screaming about those things. Yeah. On the other hand, um, there is visibly, visibly high inflation and low productivity. Um, so maybe appropriately rated because, um, yeah, it's, it's something everybody knows is a problem. Nobody's doing about it, anything about it. So it just is, I guess, just keeps going, keeps um, going. Right. Political polarization in the U.S. Is that overrated or underrated right now? Hmm. So, um, probably appropriately rated. I mean, people seem to characterize it in a fair manner, and yeah, and uh, yeah, I, I think I think there's no there's no like uh, alpha available there in terms of yeah, right. <laughs> Too many people looking at it, right? Yes, exactly. Definitely, definitely. Um, GPT three overrated or underrated? I would say currently, it's actually this is a tough one. I think it's um, 
it's definitely it's definitely underrated i think people are underestimating the extent to which language models will be can be the next computing platform so i think um if not gpt3 the gpt20 is going to be like i don't even know absurdly good like it's going to be it's going to be wild it's really yeah. scary do, do yeah. you think it just ends up replacing most knowledge workers kind of in the us i don't know about that it will definitely like change the character of the knowledge work by a lot so if if it, it it if it continues the general trend of automation where you have automation then that's like uh it changes the character of work and then you just the time spent is like on different things so you're no longer shuffling papers and stapling you know forms you're yeah you're doing something else filling out email or something um so it definitely will shift the 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 way people knowledge workers spend their time i don't know it cannot replace a human because it will lack intentionality by that right. i mean you can't the open ai will not operate in the world the gpt3 won't operate in the world not in the world um and it won't be able to it won't have agency so right. somebody's got to drive that uh, i'm sorry someone's got to drive that like direction yeah right? someone have to drive it yeah it'll be more of a car in that sense so someone has to be the driver and uh i think that yeah so it would be it would be that that's how i would predict it will going in the short term at least awesome awesome i love that well i have hey thank you so much for taking the time I've learned a ton. I, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, where should we send people? Do you have a personal site or something that you'd like people to check out? Yeah, absolutely. I have a personal website. It's uh, just abhayvenkatesh.com, A-B-H-A-Y-B-E-N-K-A-T-E-S-H.com. Um, yeah, feel free to check it out. Awesome. We'll link to it. Thanks, Abhay. Absolutely. Thanks, Will. Bye. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives.